Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 6, 2019. Coming up, I speak with Dr. Mark Bubbs, author of Peak, about his recent book exploring the fundamentals of high performance, not the fads, the importance of consistency, but not extreme effort, and the value of patience, but not rapid transformation. We featured a few clips from this interview during the Summer Pledge Drive, but today you can hear the entire interview. And first, we begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. It's not news to the Be Savvy community of KGNU listeners that honeybees are in trouble. Although there are a lot of possible causes for their disturbing decline, which is known as colony collapse disorder, insecticides are known killers of bees. After all, these chemicals do kill insects. One common type of pesticide may be causing more collateral damage than previously believed. The chemicals, called neonicotinoids, not only kill insects directly, but now an indirect route has been found. According to a new study published this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, these pesticides can pass through the digestive system of insects that consume plant sap. The pass-through excretion, called honeydew, is a sugar-rich liquid very attractive to beneficial insects such as honeybees, hoverflies, and parasitic wasps. Unfortunately, honeydew contaminated by neonics can kill these good insects. The researchers took two of the most commonly used neonicotinoid insecticides to clementine trees. These are a kind of tangerine. Applied them to trees grown in a greenhouse. They added the chemicals to the soil in one group and sprayed it on leaves in another, mimicking the ways farmers use the pesticides. The team then sprayed a third group of trees with distilled water as controls. Then they infested the trees with mealybugs, a type of honeydew producer, and fed their resulting honeydew to hoverflies and parasitic wasps. All of the hoverflies that ate honeydew from trees sprayed with neonics died within three days, while just 10% of the control group died. In the soil-treated trees, Nearly 70% of the hoverflies died from the same chemical, compared with about 14% in the control group. More than half of the wasps also died after eating honeydew from the soil-treated and the sprayed trees, whereas less than 20% died in the controls. The study shows that honeydew is another way beneficial insects are exposed to deadly insecticides. This can devastate more insects across the food web than nectar contaminated with insecticides, the team says, because honeydew is more abundant, especially in agricultural fields. In local events, the Mornings at the Museum program at the CU Museum of Natural History provides a hands-on introduction to the wonderful world of science, liturgy, and nature. You and your preschooler can have fun learning together as you examine museum specimens, make crafts, hear a story, and make new friends. This week's program explores the journey of food through the body. The journey starts with teeth. This week, explore the art of grinding, chomping, and snipping. Bring your favorite preschooler to grind corn with a mano and matate. Print bandanas with some familiar vegetables. And take a closer look at some real animal teeth. The program is free and is perfect for parents, grandparents, and caregivers with children ages 2 to 5. 
This week's program is Thursday, August 8th, from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. The museum is located at 1035 Broadway on the CU campus. Visit the CU Museum website for details. During the pledge drive, I played excerpts from my interview with Dr. Mark Bubbs, author of Peak, his book Exploring the Fundamentals of High Performance. His protocol can be used by virtually all of us, ranging from elite athlete to active individual, strength coach, nutritionist, or practitioner who wants to expand their potential. We discussed some of his methods and thoughts. Here's Mark Bubb. Welcome to the show, Mark. I'm speaking to Dr. Mark Bubbs, author of Peak, his current book about peak performance. So maybe start off, Mark, by talking about your background and the audience that you aim this book towards. Yes, thanks so much for having me on the show. Much appreciated. And um, yeah, the book comes out of effectively you know, my practice and who I see and I tend to work on, on two different ends of the spectrum. So I work in high performance. I was a performance nutrition lead for, for Canada basketball and a collection of you know, elite Olympic and professional athletes, so on that side of the equation. And then in day-to-day clinical practice, I see a lot of you know, general population just trying to improve their health and improve their performance at work and at home and, and get through the day. And so that you know, things that come up around weight gain and prediabetes and dyslipidemia. And, and what strikes me is, you know, over the years was always clients thinking that what, you know, the elite of the best of the world do is different than what the rest of us need to do, uh, or they're sort of a different species, if you will. But it's amazing how there's these common themes and common threads that, um, you know, if, if the rest of us sort of pay attention to, it's actually, you know, improving our health, feeling better, losing weight, whatever it might be, is actually a lot more straightforward than we think it is. And, you know, unfortunately today with, with the uh, social media, it's almost, you get a lot of information, but it's tough to, for folks to sit through and figure out really, uh, you know, what what the items are that are really move the needle for them. Yeah, and one thing I really like about your book, um, speaking as a geneticist, is that you talk about individual programs because, of course, everyone is different. And so you have to take all these different factors about the individual into account. And you talk about that in your book and explain how to do it. So maybe talk briefly about like some of the components. You, you very conveniently have your book divided into several different sections that allow people to pick and choose if they want where to go. So, you know, if you're going to work sure. with, with that idea of individualizing your performance, where would you start? That is with some with a client, say. For sure, and that's a great question. I think, you know, really the first place to start is actually even in the fundamentals, and it's actually in the commonalities that we all share. So before we even get to individualization, you know, the biggest bucket is the common themes that are across everybody. You know, the fundamentals are the same for seventy-five you know, percent of all the success is going to be in terms of layering in the real 
fundamentals of how you're eating and how you're moving and lifestyle. And so that's that's the first place to go. Because sometimes, especially folks who are more familiar with, with training and, and whatnot, they almost get a little too excited about individualization before some of these fundamentals are really in place. So that's, that's an important point to emphasize. But as you mentioned, once people have those fundamentals in place, this is where individualization can really move the needle. Now we can start to figure out if a low-carb, low-fat, periodizing carbohydrate, you know, various supplements, uh, timing of nutrients, whether these things can really impact how well you look, feel, and perform. And so, you know, it's going to be different based on the individual. And um, and that's where, yeah, a little self-experimentation definitely can start to pay off. But I always emphasize with clients as well that we need to always be circling back to the fundamentals because even when you look at the best athletes in the world, you know, the top golf first, Tiger Woods recently won the Masters, and, you know, he's still working on his grip, his stance, and his setup, which is basically what you learn when you're five years old, when you first learn how to swing a golf club. And so the, the best in the world are constantly going back to those fundamentals and reworking them, and I think that's something that we always need to do as well in our lives. Well, and that's a great point about the fundamentals, because you really emphasize the science that underlies the fundamentals, and um, I'm always happy to talk about science, and that's what our show is. So maybe we can dive into some of the science. Like, for instance, um, I love that you have a whole chapter on the microbiome. That's a big favorite of ours in the show. And yeah, so talk a little bit about the role of the microbiome to the athlete, because I think a lot of people never think about that. This is definitely a fascinating area, and it's one that... um yeah, depending on what side of the fence you sit now, the microbiome is fascinating because we know that all the research coming down the pipeline in terms of, of exercise and athletes, we see these you know, improvements in diversity. You know, whether you're playing rugby, whether you're you know an elite uh, or recreational athlete, uh, Dr. Nick West out of Griffiths University in, the, in Australia has done some great work on this, and it's it's gotten to the point now where the the balance of this gut biome is is influencing potentially performance. So we're trying to figure out if there's potentially various species that could be leveraged or, or supported, let's say, uh, to improve performance. Of course, on the other side of the aisle, you get folks who think, well, wait a minute, you know, is this a chicken or the egg question here? Is this simply the result of the athlete being fit and in shape and we get this, you know, what they call the athlete microbiome signature? Or is this actually something that we can manipulate? And for me, it's a very interesting question because I'm um, as you mentioned, in terms of individualization, oftentimes you know, people are coming to me with athletes who are struggling with various conditions around digestion. And of course, we always look to the evidence and, and follow an evidence-based practice to be able to support them. But these are high-level athletes. These are individual cases, and there's only so much you can get from what's in the evidence. And you have to start to make some clinical decisions and then based on what you're seeing from the client, based on what's in the evidence. And, and this is where, you know, there's, there's no, um, it's definitely a case-by-case basis. You know, what works for one person in terms of changing their diet and adding different foods or taking foods away or adjusting training doesn't necessarily just neatly package on to the next person who presents in a similar manner. And so I think that's a pretty fascinating area with respect to the microbiome. I think the connection between the microbiome and the immune system is a really powerful area as well because we know now in the research in terms of athletic performance, 
you know, simply being tired, run down, you know, frequently catching colds and blues, that's been recently um, stated as being incompatible with elite performance. You know, if you can't show up every day and do your best, then you're just not going to keep up with the competition. And this was where it dovetails for the rest of us. You know, if you're in academia, if you're in the business world, if you're, you know, just trying to keep up with things at home, if you can't feel your best and perform your best day in, day out, rather than these kind of extreme efforts that we see on in, in social media or whatnot are often portrayed in commercials of athletes, it really is just that idea of, of, of being able to, to put that effort in every single day. And, and that was one of the, the you know, pretty amazing take-homes of the book, even in talking with a lot of the high-performance teams in various sports. Yeah, and that's a really good point on the interaction of these different complex systems, for instance, the individual genetics and the complexity of the microbiome, and then tie in the immune system, which is probably the second most complex system after the nervous system. And you throw all those factors together, and then you get that individualized performance. And it's really important what you're saying about how um, this is a basis, not just for elite performance, but for daily performance, which is important to all of us. And I like it that you cite evidence-based work as well, because of course, as scientists, you know, that's really what counts. And um, the human studies are intriguing to me because each one of them is kind of a little snapshot, and usually they're really small sample sizes, so they give us a hint as to what's yep. going on. So could you talk a little bit about that, how you how you sift through some of these studies to reach the conclusions you come to? Well, that's a great point in the sense that, you know, even the podcast that I host, one of the things that I'm trying to, to do is to connect you know, the general population, even high-performance practitioners, with people who are at the front lines who are doing the research, the experts, the PhDs, because oftentimes, you know, they're so busy in their own domains that they don't get a chance to, to communicate their information outside of their own domain. And that's one of the reasons why in the book we, we made a real point of calling out all of these experts and, and trying to you know, do our best in terms of putting all these hundreds of citations in so people can dig into this information for themselves and and get even more out of it. And, you know, for me, it's, in terms of combing through the research is, is the first place, but I, I find it very fascinating to get a chance to talk to the folks on the front line, the researchers doing the work, to see, you know, what's their interpretation of even the research that they've presented, and the abstract, the study, because there's always these nuances in between. And when you work in you know, athletic performance, you're always sort of pushing that boundary in a sense of, you can't simply rely on what's in the evidence base. You've got, you've got to start pushing beyond that. And so you're asking experts what they're, um, you know, what they believe the evidence supports, but also, you know, what the extensions of this evidence could, could lead to, because often, you know, it works both ways. Definitely science will come in and, and if we, you know, keep the conversation around performance, things like beetroot juice is one where, you know, beta alanine, again, these, these nutrients, these supplements where, we saw evidence in the research first, and then it was applied into sports. You know, but oftentimes, it's the practitioners and the people on the ground that are pushing the boundaries first, and then you know, science is able to explain to us why it's happening. And so for me, getting a chance to just connect and chat with all those researchers on the front lines and give them a bit of information on what I'm hearing from other, you know, other researchers or the problems that we're having in, with athletes or in sport, and, and to hear their 
uh, their take on it is, is really refreshing. Yeah, it's great to be able to be in communication with people that are at the leading edge because so much of the time there's a huge lag time. Like just for instance, you know, so many people are still eating the high-carb diet when the, much of the current research is showing that high levels of carbon in the diet are not really good for us. But, you know, the whole food pyramid and the governments are lagging behind. And, and that, of course, that probably has something to do with industrial push. But um, I, I was delighted to see that you have a big section in your book about fueling performance. And so and, and also that you talk about glucose and insulin and carbs, and you explain this in a lot of detail. But let's just touch on that for people that maybe aren't that familiar with the current thought on this issue. Yeah, and I think a lot of this stems even from the fact that we tend to translate what's in the recommendations for performance, and this is elite performance, down to recreational athletes. And so a great example of this, um, Dr. Andy Jones, who was supporting and, and running really the Breaking Two initiative, which was Eliad Kipchoge, a you know, world record holder in the marathon, was trying to break a two-hour mark. And Dr. Jones recounts a story of a friend of his who was an elite runner, you know, elite endurance athlete as a recreational athlete. And they were testing these athletes up before the real pros were coming into the lab. And this individual, you know, got up to about 17 kilometers an hour, so he's really going for it in the treadmill. Of course, taps out, that's all he can achieve. Finishes for the day, he's exhausted. And now the best of the world come in. And they start at 17 kilometers an hour and work upwards from there. So it, it truly is amazing that it's just, again, a totally different species to say, or a person or, or you know, animal in the sense of, of, of where they are going in terms of how they're performing. And so one of the problems is we would say, well, if Eliab Kachoge needs 8 grams per kilogram body weight per day of carbohydrate, then your recreational athlete who's training should have the same. Or let's say Eliab Kachoge takes... 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour whilst running. Therefore, you know, your client who's perhaps 10 or 20 pounds overweight, who's training up for a marathon, should do the same. This is where we get into a lot of problems because, you know, the general population, unfortunately, you know, the great initiatives, you know, running for, to improve their health, to improve their fitness, to, for a charity as well. And, you know, they ramp up their training volume for two or three months and there's very little weight loss. In the you know in the client base for this example of someone who needed to lose weight, and so blood sugars aren't getting any better over two or three months. Inflammation's not getting any better, and you think, gee, this person's increased their energy expenditure two, three, four, sometimes fivefold. And that's the real scenario where we need to then say, you know, we know that we have the nutrition strategy incorrect. If a person has dramatically increased energy expenditure, and we're not seeing any improvements in these areas, and I think. You know, unfortunately, in the, again, in the general population, we, we see that more often than we should do. And I think that gets back to your, you know, you, what you mentioned there around, you know, carbohydrate intake. And whilst there's nuance there, and, and from a strictly scientific perspective, we'd say, well, it's not necessarily carbohydrate. This could even be if fats were too high. But, you know, as a clinician, in the environment that we're in, when we look at the top five or six foods that are consumed in North America, Canada included, you know, unfortunately, they're calorie-dense. They're grain-based desserts, breads and cereals, uh, fried chicken's number three. Then you get into things like pizza, soda pop, and alcohol. And so obviously not the, not the most stellar list of top six foods that are consumed, but this is what people are eating. And if we adopt a low-carb diet, 
then all of a sudden we, we, we cross off the list, you know, five out of six of the most calorie-dense foods. And so at the moment, it's quite an effective strategy uh, for the general population to adhere to. And I think sometimes that's where it's difficult in science um, versus even being a clinician of saying, well, from a strictly correct perspective, it really isn't about lowering carbohydrate to lose weight. Right? It's about calories in and calories out. But in the food environment that we're in, it, for the clients in front of us, it's actually the easiest in the short term to achieve that. And so th- those two things are often um, difficult to, you know, it's hard to square that circle in a sense. Um, because who knows, in another decade, we might have all the processed food and, and ultra-processed food might be high-fat and low-carb. You know, in my fear, we'd be, we'd be in the same situation. So Which it's been brings... a long-winded way to say, you know, it's, it's important for folks to, to you know, if, if we start from even just a food-first approach, if you eat real food, the caloric intake's going to come down and you're going to do well in terms of improving, you know, body composition, blood sugars, inflammation, and so on. Right. And I have to agree with the point you make in the book, too, that the ultra-processed foods are things that we can just throw out um, immediately, and those tend to be really high-carb high and empty calories. And then one final point I wanted to get to was um, I, you spend a lot of time talking about recovery, and I think that's something that people, especially recreational athletes, don't think about a lot. It's like train, 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 but we forget about recovering. Sure. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your philosophy towards recovery. Yeah, I mean, this is a science that's been uh, really accelerated in the last decade. You know, you can actually like Dr. Sean Hall at the Australian Institute for Sport. And it's, you know, it's figuring out, you know, what is recovery? And, and this is one of those really interesting questions where, you know, even the best scientists in the world just trying to define this one question. Because we often think of recovery as just, you know, what you need to do to recover from the session you just performed. But really, recovery is more than that. I mean, it's preparation for the following session. What are you doing the next day or in two days' time? And so, you know, when you look at these things, the term overtraining gets thrown around a lot, but most of the time it's this idea of under-recovery. Particularly when we look at recreational athletes, even recreational elite, because it's it's too much time in terms of training volume, same exercise intensities or too much total time that is causing a lot of these issues around you know, feeling tired and lethargic and struggling with focus and concentration and, and the, the typical things you might feel if you were in this, what we used to think of as the overtraining mode. And I think, you know, that's one where people can definitely come back to, okay, what's my training plan? There's going to be some gaps in there. How can I adjust that? How can I tweak my nutrition? And then, the, you know, the fascinating part from a lot of people comes in these modalities that you can add in in terms of, you know, cold water therapies like the ice baths or cryotherapy you know, or when warmer water might be more beneficial. And this is where Dr. Halson's work is pretty fascinating because, you know, we've periodized training, now we periodize nutrition. And in the book, we talk about her work in periodized recovery. You know, when is it appropriate to be really icing and using cold baths? And actually, when is it not the best thing for us to be doing this? You know, there's a lot of tradition in sport and exercise, and sometimes we just do things because that's what we've always done, you know. It's it's not necessarily... Uh, what's in the evidence. So it, it's definitely a pretty fascinating uh, area. And it's, you know, it's marginal gains. But I think for, for people who are really pushing the limits, it, it becomes interesting in terms of being able to then support their ability to continue to, you know, achieve personal best and perform as they get older. 
Yeah, it's so true. And there's there's so much more we can talk about, but we are running out of time, unfortunately. So I will provide a link to the book as well as to your podcast. And um, interested listeners can go to both or either of those. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today on How on Earth. That was Dr. Mark Bubbs talking about the performance protocol he has developed and outlined in his book, Peak. He brings together the worlds of health, nutrition, and exercise, and synthesizes the salient science into actionable guidance. And remember, if you want to know more, I will put a link to his book and his podcast on the How on Earth website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The executive producer for this quarter is me, Beth Bennett, and I produced and engineered this show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Tommy James and the Shondells. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, and you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.